James 5, verse 12. This is God's holy word. Please give your attention to it as it's read in the presence of His people. James 5, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come before you in these moments and ask that you would quiet our hearts, that you would give our minds understanding, that you would fill our hearts with affection for you, our great and triune God, and that you would renew our wills to be obedient unto your law, not for our own sake, but for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has bought us to be his very own. In his name we pray, amen. Today we consider briefly why we ought to be people of the truth and and how we become people of the truth. It was one author that said, in a time of universal deception, telling the truth is is a revolutionary act. You ask yourself, do we live in a time of universal deception? Well, in, in many ways, yes. There are many ways that people can put a front on their own life and kind of project to the world what they want others to see. In, in some sense and on some level, that is, that is always happening. You can see, see that in various ways that people post things on different internet sites and, and the age in which we live is an age of kind of the ubiquity of that kind of thing. Who do you want to be? And what do you want other people to believe you to be? In the political realm, of course, this is constantly going on. It's the age of spin, right? The news and politics. We live in the age of spin. I was reminded of this frustratingly this past week where as people are thinking about what's going on in our economy and all of the struggles there and the inflation, and for several days the conversation was what, what the word recession actually means. You've got to redefine that word, and that's what the conversation became about. It was all a spin about whether or not we can call something this or that, and thus the substance of the conversation is being avoided. It's, it's, the, it's the age of spin. We kind of know what all of this means. But what would it be like if we lived in a world of truth? What would it be like if people admitted and owned mistakes? What would it be like if uh, people constantly did not try to maneuver out of a corner? If we were not masters of weaving a web of lies? That's the world that we can look forward to in many ways, isn't it? The world, the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation where righteousness will dwell. Something that we look forward to is that it will be all truth, always and all the time. The reliability of God and His promises and what He creates is what we look forward to. What would it be like, brothers and sisters, if we now were truly people of the truth, if we told the truth? 
What would it be like if we shared the truth of Jesus Christ with the lost? What would it be like if we uh, confronted our friends and uh, our close friends and our family uh, whom we dearly love when they stray from the proper path? And because we dearly love them, we must share the truth with them, not avoid it. What would it be like if we so treasured the gifts of words and the tongue that we desired to make it clear that in every aspect of our lives we will tell the truth, that people would know us as those who need no extra affirmations in normal conversations like, I swear or I promise that I'm telling the truth. Brothers and sisters, that is exactly what we are called to be and do. We are called to be people of the truth. We are called to speak no lies and to live not by lies. We are called to be people whose honesty and straightforwardness are so reliable and so consistent that we are taken at our word because we're known as men and women of our word, men of character and virtue. But why should we be? Why must we be people of the truth? Well, if God is the truth, then how can his people be people of the lie? Thus, since God is a God of perfect, perpetual, and plain truth, then we must, too, strive for truthfulness to be our ever-present ever reality in our lives, for it to be plain to all and to reflect the character of the one who is the truth. Two ideas this morning. First, be true to your word, and secondly, worship the God who is true to his word. Be true to your word. Worship the God who is true to his word. James says in this verse, above all, now that may seem odd, is James saying that this command that he gives to not swear, to be a person of the truth, let your yes be yes, let your no be no, is he saying that this exists on a higher plane than all of his other instruction in this letter? Well, no, it probably means something like finally or as we conclude. He's now moving into the, uh, the last section of this of this general epistle, and kind of summing it all up. Nevertheless, there is an emphasis that he gives to this. He does begin this last section with this command to truthfulness. And so there is a a particular emphasis here that God's people are to be marked by truthfulness. They are to be marked by personal integrity. And if you go through all of the instruction in James and, and all that he writes here in this letter, you'll find that Personal integrity and truthfulness can be woven throughout all that he commands us to do. So it's not the most important command or above all of the other instruction, but it is given an emphasis for us to focus on it, and that's why we're giving some particular focus today. It's hard to read this without hearing in your minds, if you're familiar with Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says something very similar. We've gone through it in the past year or so. Jesus says in Matthew 5, I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. In other words, all of those things are are outside of your grasp and control. Do not swear by them. Then he says, and do not take an oath by your own head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. You're not in control of your own life. Thus, you You cannot swear or take authority upon your own head in that way. Let what you say, Jesus says, be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. These are not random things that Jesus chose. There were extensive uh, rabbinical texts that taught people 
how to swear by things other than the name of God. So, for instance, swearing by heaven or by earth was not binding. So they had this extensive system to teach people how to kind of manipulate the truth, evade the truth, and be clever about it. To swear by the temple was not binding in these rabbinical texts, but to swear by the gold of the temple was binding. You see how convoluted this whole system was. We engage in these kinds of games. You remember in the playground when you were kids, arguing about certain things, I promise, do you promise that that's true? Do you swear that's true? Now, these are things that Jesus tells us not to do. So, children, I'm not telling you to do this. But children get into an argument about what the truth is, and they kind of raise the stakes with each one. Do you swear by this? Do you swear by that? Yes, I swear by this, but I don't swear by that. There were these kinds of things going on in that day. And uh, James writing in his, const- in his context to the early church these kinds of of things would have been going on as well, would have been the context of these Jewish believers to know that this kind of thing goes on, sprinkling oaths into your everyday conversation. But really, it was not a way to be truthful. It was a way to be less than truthful. There were these three errors that had crept into the Jewish context. To use oaths liberally in everyday conversation, to swear by things other than God, and to never intend to keep the oath. Now, in, in speaking this way, what are they trying to avoid? They're trying to avoid breaking specifically the third commandment, maybe perhaps the first and the second as well. But the, they're seeking to evade the third commandment, but really, what does it do? It, it, it dishonors God in the same kind of way, because when you would swear by something other than God, you make that thing out to be like God, and thus you bring dishonor upon Him. And then, of course, to to rashly or vainly swear by God's name brings down the honor and glory of of His name, as if His name can be used or invoked however we want. So this is what is being addressed both by Jesus and by James. Don't let your conversation be marked by these kinds of things. What ought you to be people of the truth, people of character, who are known by the people around you, that His or Her Word is what is meant and what is kept. But what is forbidden? Some people say, well, this means that all oaths, all solemn oaths or even vows are then forbidden. Is that what Jesus and James are teaching? Well, no. In many ways, we're an oath-bound society, and our society is bound in many ways by oaths. Public servants, police, fire take oaths, or politicians take oaths of office. Perhaps in other various walks of life, there are oaths that are being taken. The church, of course, is, is marked by the vows that we take, baptism and profession of faith, the vows that we make to God, the promises that we make, the officers of the church. Are these kinds of things forbidden? Well, no. We are forbidden from making rash and irreverent oaths, from using them in the course of, of everyday conversation, for oaths and vows are fitting only in times of solemn occasion. They are to be approached with prudence and care. To take an oath is is an act of worship, which means it's a a special part of our obedience to God. It's a solemn occasion. They are to be only in God's name. They are to be serious and weighty. They are to be taken without reservation or without any purpose of evasion. Those are the kinds of games that we're playing. 
We see in, in much evidence from Scripture that there are solemn occasions where oaths, vows are appropriate. Paul, the Apostle Paul, called upon God as his witness at various times in his letters. He says in Romans 1, for instance, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He's wanting to comfort the church in Rome, and he says, I say even before God that I am praying for you earnestly, not only for your faith and life, but also that I would have opportunity to come to you. He does that various times. We find other evidence in the New Testament. We even find God Himself is, a God, is an oath-making God. And to our great joy, He's a covenant-keeping God. The book of Hebrews shows us that, that what God has done in redemption is something that is bound by oath. He has made an oath. He has sworn that He will make His Son a priest forever. He has sworn that He will set the Son of David on His throne. And the book of Hebrews lays this out for us again and again and again. God is an oath-making and an oath-keeping God. So we know that these things can't fly against one another. So what is James calling us to be? He's calling us to be people of the truth. What's the command? Be people of the truth in your everyday lives. Our truthfulness should be so reliable and so consistent that we need no promise or oath to support it. My daughter taught me this lesson in the past couple of weeks. Uh, she's learning how to swim, so we're at a relative's pool. And, you know, uh, I would tell her to swim out to me. I'm kind of in the middle of the pool. Swim out to me. And if I see that she's going well, what, what was I doing? I'd take some steps backwards, right, as she's coming to me so that she's pushing herself, right? She didn't like that, which, you know, it's her right to not like that. So the next time she says, are you going to stay where you are? And I think I did some sort of rabbinical evasion game. I said, oh, well, yeah, sure. And I see she's going well again. I kind of take some steps back, okay? So now my daughter knows this, the yes that he's giving to me is worthless, right? And so she says again, and we go again, and uh, are you going to stay there? Yeah. Do you promise? Right? Looking straight at my, do you promise? Do you pinky promise? Right? And it was that reminder to me, we need to be people of the truth. Find a better way to teach and challenge your daughter. Be a person of the truth. Silly example, but all kinds of examples in our own life. Are we people of the truth? such that our word is reliable. That's what we're being commanded to be, to be people of the truth. We ought to strive to have our yes be all that we need and for others to know us in such a way. Why should we do that? And how do we do that? We do that because we are people of the God who is the truth. So worship the God who is true to his word. Reflect the character of God. First, this, God keeps His Word. God keeps His Word. God is the truth. Herman Boving says this, all that proceeds from God has the stamp of truthfulness. He will always stand by His words and promises and prove them to be true so that He will be seen as completely trustworthy. 
God's trustworthiness is kind of bringing together many of His attributes, but particularly two of them. First, His truth and His unchanging nature. He is true, and He does all that is true, and He never changes. Thus, He is what? He is trustworthy. So, it brings together uh, those two attributes and, and, and others. But first, God is the truth. He is the supreme being, as Augustine says, the supreme truth and the supreme good. He does not possess the truth, but is the truth. God is the truth. Psalm 36, your faithfulness extends to the clouds. His truthfulness is as high as the heavens, in other words. Isaiah 45, I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Whatever He says is right and good and true. Numbers 23, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it, or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? He's the truth. He's unchanging. God never changes. Even now what he is, he always has been. He must always be true and the same if his truth is to be completely trusted. If we are to trust him, He must not only be true, he must always be true. And thus we find him to be a true and unchanging God. Here we rejoice that he's a covenant-keeping God. How can we trust that God is a covenant-keeping God? How can we trust that he is a promise-keeping God? Because he never changes. Deuteronomy 7, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Why can you and I not make promises unto a thousand generations? Because we're not unchanging. Because we are not true in the way that God is true. He keeps covenant and he keeps covenant forever. That's who he is. He keeps his word. So God keeps his word. Secondly, God has kept his word. God has kept his word. The Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, was given to us by a promise. Several promises, in fact. The eternal covenant of redemption, which we see in Scripture, that from all eternity, the triune God covenanted together to accomplish redemption in history. You see that? We see the promise of Eden that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent that shapes all of human history. All of human history is, is leading us to the Savior of the world, to Jesus Christ. The promise to Abraham, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The promise to David, I will set a descendant on your throne and he will reign forever. Special promise there in Genesis 22. We speak of this from time to time, one of the greatest chapters in Scripture. God commands Abraham, take up your son and sacrifice him. The son, your only son, whom you love. The son of the promise. Go and take him and sacrifice him. Well, what happens? The Lord provides a ram. It's caught in the thicket. Abraham, what does he name that place? He names that place Yahweh Jireh. The Lord sees, that's from the the, the Hebrew verb to see, the Lord will see to it. The Lord will make a way. He He will see to a way so that I do not have to offer up my son. How does God keep his word ultimately? Where does he keep his promise? Not far from that mountain where Abraham was, was Calvary, where God kept finally and fully kept his promise. He he sacrificed his own son. 
to keep that word. He kept his word. What does Psalm 15 say? What's the, what's the man of integrity look like? He swears to his own hurt and he does not change. When he promises something that may be hard for him to do, he stands by what he has said he will do. And what has God promised? What did God promise to accomplish redemption? Unless he gives his son. He who spared not his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Right? God has kept the greatest word. And that's why we are to be people of the truth, people of our word. God keeps His Word. God has kept His Word. God will keep His Word. He will keep His Word in two ways. He will keep His Word in that this world and our race will be judged. We will be judged. So do not miss the warning of James 5.12. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Those who are known as liars, as those who do not put forth the truth, as those who do not live by the truth, as those who do not submit to the truth, fall under God's condemnation. Two guarantees of the future. The judgment of those who rebel against God and the salvation of those who bring themselves under the blessing of Christ. Have you secured your interest in Jesus Christ? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish. Do you believe God's Word? God will keep His Word. Do not miss the warning of judgment. Have you secured your interest in Christ by believing in Him? Do you trust the gospel of grace? Have you repented and believed in Jesus? God will keep His Word also to bring us to eternal blessedness. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. My sister was sick with leukemia. I remember uh, the hospital chaplain coming in talking to her. And uh, she spoke of heaven as a place. And uh, the chaplain, kind of wishy-washy, certainly, in what he was purveying, he said, well, you know, to some people, heaven's a place. To some, it's not. Imagine saying that to a child with cancer. And she said, my sister, 12, said, Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. God will keep his word. Jesus will keep his word because he has kept his word, because he is an oath-keeping and a covenant-keeping God. He will keep his word. The Titus chapter 1 says that we have the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. The God who never lies has promised eternal life for you. He will keep his word. Do you believe it with all of your heart? Let this be an anchor for your soul. Thus you can be assured in the midst of trial and suffering. And so Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. When we suffer, when we go through difficult things, I know many of us are facing those kinds of things now. What is it that, why we are so restless and anxious? It's because 
we feel so out of control. But here's what I want you to understand, brothers and sisters. For the believer, the truth that we do not have control becomes the very bedrock, the foundation for our comfort. Because Jesus Christ, the King of kings, because our triune God and Lord, He is the one who is in control. This is what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is bringing us to. The foundation of our comfort is that the God who is wiser than we are is the one who is in control. Thus, life is not meaningless. Thus, it becomes our great joy to hand over to Him our own notions of what control actually is. He will keep His word, Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. I will take you to myself. He he keeps his word. He has kept his word. He will keep his word. And then finally this, he is keeping his word now. He's keeping his word now as we gather together for worship. He is keeping his word now as we come to the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, what does it say? It says that when the bread that we break is a communion with the body of Christ, that spiritually present to those who eat and drink in faith, to those who eat and drink looking to Jesus Christ and trusting in the power of the Spirit that God ministers to us here because He has promised to do so. He has promised that here when we gather, especially He is ministering to us. That he will give us true nourishment. That here is true spirituality. The regular, the ordinary means of grace. Here is where our souls are fed. Men may have ideas that they can manipulate where God acts and moves, especially in history. It's not true. God works and moves where he sees fit and where he is delighted to work and move. And he promises to minister to his people here. He's keeping his word now, even as we gather around the table, even as we come and sit under the preaching of the word. Here is true growth in grace. Abide in Christ and rely upon our triune God, our triune God of the truth. And he, by his grace, will make you a person of the truth. Let's pray.